Greetings and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com, the podcast program in which we study Parashat Shavua over the course of six podcasts broadcast during the week in which we're reading that parashah. My name is Yitzchak Shalom, and it's my privilege to be studying the second half of Sefer Shemot with you. We are now in the fifth podcast of Parashat Mishpatim, and we have gone through the law code in a sections, and this, the final section of the law code uh, segment of Mishpatim, which makes up its bulk, is <clears throat> a section that deals with the courts themselves and ancillary things that we will comment on as we move along. Um, it begins at Perak Chaf Bet, Pasuk Chaf Zayin. We have just finished the section dealing with protection for the underprivileged and the disenfranchised. And now, Elohim lo tekalel, lo ta'or. This this prohibition, you may not curse Elohim, uh, seems to be a prohibition against cursing God. However, the second half of the Pasuk teaches us something a little bit different, which is Nasivi Amcha, literally a raised up person, a prince, a lordly person in your nation, do not curse. Now this Pasuk is clearly a parallelism, and we have to remember that biblical uh, poetry certainly, and even prose, is written in a binary style of parallels, where the etnachta, the resting point in the middle of the Pasuk, serves to break off part A from part B, and here we have a perfect parallelism. Lo ta'or is the same as lo t'kalel. Nasivi amcha, therefore, becomes a parallel to Elohim, and we now understand Elohim as judge, as we have seen it used many times, or several times already, in Parshat Mishpatim, um, as in the first parsha of the Eved Ivri, uh, el Elohim. It's to the court or to the judge. So you're not allowed to curse the judge, and nor a prince, another leader among the people. Uh, these are people who typically there is going to be a tendency to want to curse for reasons that we'll get to in a few psukim. And then we go off onto what seems to be a tangent. So Malayatcha seems to be referring and Dimacha is referring to different yields of produce that you have from your field. Do not delay. Do not delay what? So it seems to be do not delay bringing them. So this is alluding to offerings that we will hear about later on. And this is something that we have already seen happen in Parshat Mishpatim, where there are faint little hints to laws that will be outlined and ex- explicated later on, such as the law of the Arei Miklat, which is just hinted to at the beginning of the parasha. Here also seems to be a reference to Trumot, or possibly Bikurim. And the second half, Bechor Banecha you give me the first of your sons. And that, of course, is something that was already clarified back in Parakut Gimel at the end of Parshat Bo, the sanctification of the firstborn and the redemption of the firstborn. Now this Pasuk is a little bit odd because it seems to parallel the uh, bringing of an offering on the eighth day to giving the Bechorot. And the reason that's odd is because every Bechor belongs to God. A Bechor, the firstborn of a human, is redeemed. And the firstborn of animals that can be brought as a Korban are given to the Kohen, and if they are without blemish, are brought as a Korban. However, 
the second half of this pasuk, Shivat Yamim Ya Imimo, it will be with its mother for seven days. On the eighth day, you give it to me. On the eighth day, says God, is referring to a law that we will see later on in Sefer Vayikra, which is the prohibition against bringing an animal as an offering before it's had seven days to nurse with its mother. And here it is not an obligation to bring it because most animals are brought as korbanot, but rather a obligation to not take it before the eighth day. So there's a little bit of a uh, of a an asymmetry in the pasuk here. But if we understand that these particular psukim are all giving us sort of brief hints topic sentences, names of laws that will be explicated later on in parts of the Torah, then we understand that these are just sort of markers. And continuing on with that, You shall be holy people to me. And where is that holiness manifested? <coughs> which means Meat that is found ripped up in the field, you may not eat. Trefa means to rip up. We saw that earlier in the context of one of the Shomrim. <coughs> trefa lo yishalem. And the word trefa, which we colloquially apply to all food which is not permitted to be eaten, so we call it treif, nonetheless here actually refers to an animal that has been wounded and therefore is imminently or within a certain given period going to die as a result of its wounds is already prohibited from our eating but but you do throw it to the dogs which does imply you may benefit from it by feeding it to other animals it is not a prohibition of benefit but rather only a prohibition of eating and this is the class known as a trefa which is dealt with in detail in the third parak of masachet chulin the elu trefot that goes into the 18 different signs of a trefa such as a punctured lung etc and um, that parenthetically is where the whole concept of of a glot kosher comes from of extra checking uh, into the animal but none any animal that is slaughtered after it's slaughtered has to be checked for internal wounds that may retroactively render the slaughter somewhat meaningless in the sense that it is still a trefa and may not be eaten we then move back to the court and and the uh, court which is already uh, presented in the first pasuk of this podcast Elohim Lotakalel now gets a fuller treatment Lotisa Shemashav, do not bear a false report. And don't put your hand with a wicked person to be a violent or thieving witness. What that means here is do not join in testimony with somebody that you know is wicked. And this plays out halachically as follows. I know that a certain event happened, I know that somebody borrowed money from someone else, or I know that somebody committed a crime, and I'm a witness to it. However, one witness may not testify. So I'm going to come to court, and I'm going to tell the truth about what I know that happened. However, the only other witness is somebody that I know to be a wicked person. So I still may not support him by joining with him because I'm effectively subverting the judicial process by having an incorrect testimony meaning an inappropriate witness, an unacceptable witness, become part of the testimony, and I'm joining it. Lotisa Shemashav is a warning to the court. 
And Al-Tashit Nechaim Rashaliyot Nechamas, who warning to individuals not to join in with improper testimony. And now, Loti Achare Rabim Leraot, do not follow the majority for bad. And do not respond to a to a squabble or to a quarrel to follow the majority. Now, this can be read in many ways. It can be read as a general ethical uh, direction, which is just because most people are doing something bad doesn't mean you should join them. And do not get involved in a quarrel to follow the majority's approach to this quarrel between two people. However, because the context, both Pasuk Aleph and Pasuk Gimel, are about court proceedings, as we'll see in a moment with Pasuk Gimel, this is read by Chachamim as being an instruction to the court. is dealt with in a most unusual way. We know that a court, uh, unlike uh, in the United States, in order to convict does not need a unanimous vote by the panel, but rather needs a majority. And therefore, if you have a court of three and uh, someone has come with a claim that somebody else owes him money, then if the court votes two to one that he owes the money, he owes the money. Uh, however, uh, in, uh, in the case of a, of a capital crime, the ruling is that you cannot just follow a simple majority to convict. So the halakha is that we need 23 judges on a, any capital case. Why 23 judges? So we understand, based on Psukim in, uh, in Parshat uh, Shoftim, and in Parshat Mas'eh, that you need an Edah, you need a 10-man panel that will acquit, and a 10-man panel that will convict. That's 20. You can't have an even-sized court. That's the rule. Ain Beitin Shakul. So you need 21. However, you cannot convict with the same kind of majority that you can acquit. You can acquit on a simple majority of 12 to 11. But 12 to 11 will not, uh, 11, sorry, 11 to 10 will not give you a majority for conviction. You need to have a bigger majority. And so therefore, you need to have at least 12 to 10. And since you can't have an even-sized court, therefore you need to have 23 on the court. And so we're imagining now you'd at least need 13 judges to convict, and that's based on the pasuk, lo rabim l'ra'ot, l'ra'ot here not being evil, but rather for conviction. And then becomes a separate phrase, halachically, which is we do follow the majority. We follow the majority both for legislative purposes and judicial purposes. So in any other sort of case, or in a capital case for leniency, for acquittal, we follow the majority. We also follow the majority when it comes to halachic opinions. In most cases, there are exceptions to that rule. Vidal Lotadabrivo. A poor man who previously in the previous podcast as we saw, we are supposed to protect and take care of, you're still not to lahader. You're not supposed to honor him in his in his quarrel. Meaning if a poor man comes to court, you're not supposed to automatically favor him just because he's a poor man. Which of course works in in uh in counterbalance against the tendency to favor the rich man 
figuring either I want to make nice with him because he can enrich me, or I would assume he wouldn't come to court unless he had a real claim because he doesn't really need the money. Nonetheless, you're not allowed to favor him. But here, the natural tendency to favor the poor and help him out is also quashed. It has to be strict justice in the court itself. And then we get two laws that have to do with our behavior with other people, uh, and we have to see how this fits in with the juridical system, with the description of the court. If you encounter the ox of your enemy, we'll have to see what that enemy is, or his donkey wandering out lost, then you have to return it to him. And this is the mitzvah of returning a lost item. Why is it put here, and why is it uh, in, in described as the animal of your enemy? And we'll see that after we look at Pasuke, which is a parallel. So if you see the donkey of your enemy, and he is burdened, he is breaking underneath his burden, then, and you are, and you are tempted, you are tempted, you stay away from helping him, the opposite, you have to actually help him, azov ta'azov imo, now azov ta'azov we would mean, we'd think means abandon him, but imo tells you with him, so azov ta'azov is understood as azor ta'azor, help him, meaning you have to help un- unload the burden, and this is the mitzvah of prika, the mitzvah of helping someone else unburden their animal when they are offloading from their animal. Many interesting halachot dealing with this, including uh, the fact that if you come and start helping and the other guy sits down and says, well, you've got a mitzvah to help, so I'm going to sit by and watch, then you're not obligated because that's a zov tazov imo. You have to work with him. But who are you working with? You're working with sona acha, your enemy, your, somebody who hates you. And in the previous pasuk, oyivcha, your enemy. So we're talking about two obligations you have to help re- restore or save the property of somebody with whom you are at odds. Who is this Oyev and who is this Sone? So if we assume for a moment that this is somebody not of our fold, an outsider, who is part of an enemy camp, we have no obligation to help him. Uh, we might say that Mishum Darke Shalom, it's nice social behavior, it will increase peace between the communities, very nice, but we don't have an, an inherent halachic obligation. This must be somebody who's Jewish. And the Gemaran Psachim in the last chapter asks, how could it be that you hate somebody? Uh, after all, Lotis you're supposed to not feel that way towards other Jews. And so the simple read of the Gemara there is that it says it's dealing with somebody of with whom you are aware has violated the law, and <clears throat> therefore you're regarding him as somebody who is to be hated. Nonetheless, you have to overcome that. However, there is a different way to read this within the context of Apsukim. Remember, we're dealing with a judicial case. We're dealing with quarrels between people and following the majority to make a decision, not favoring the poor. And now, let's read it this way. You encounter the ox of somebody who you right now are in the middle of a court case against. And he's wandering. So you could think, well, I'm not going to help that guy out. The answer is no. You have to go and return it to him. And if you see the donkey of a fellow whom you are suing or who is suing you, and he's burdened underneath his, his pack, you, and you want to you want, want to uh, not help, you want to walk away. Why do you want to walk away? Because why do I want to help him? The answer is you do have to help him. 
which means this is expanding, if you will, the rule of the court of saying a court case stays in court. And you cannot allow that to affect the way that you interact with your fellow Jew. You still have to treat him like a brother, and you still have to, or a sister, and you have to take care of him and be concerned about his property and his welfare. And I see that because the very next pasuk takes us back into court. Lo tatem mishpat evyoncha berivo. And this is the counterbalance to the doll. You're not allowed to favor the doll. On the other hand, you're not allowed to incline the case of your poor person in his quarrel, meaning to incline away from it, to turn away from it, and to incline in favor of the wealthy. So in other words, the message of these psukim put together is there must be absolute strict justice without consideration of the person's station and his finances and everything else. Strict justice in the court. Outside of the court, the empathy, the sympathy, the fellowship, the brotherhood that you're supposed to have towards Jews should not be touched, and you have to continue behaving properly towards them. That's not an easy thing, but the Torah is not asking us to do easy things. And we continue. Midvar sheker tirchak. sadik al kilo rasha. Midvar sheker tirchak. Stay away from words of lying. And this seems again to be directed to the court to avoid words that you know to be false reports or false testimony. Make sure not to kill an innocent or righteous, and tzaddik in the Torah, in the Tanakh, usually means an innocent person or a blameless or innocent person, do not kill. I will not justify or claim to be innocent a wicked person. Who's the wicked person? The wicked person is the judge who executes an innocent person. And why would, he, why would he kill an innocent person? Because he accepted the false testimony. So this pasuk is a sequence. Stay away from false testimony and false reports, because that will, if you're not, then that will lead you to executing somebody who's blameless. And I will not cleanse you for doing that. You will be considered the rasha, and I will not get you off the hook. We continue with this theme, v'shalchad lo tikach. A prohibition, you shall not take bribery. And this is very clearly directed to the judges. What does bribery do? What does graft do? It blinds the eyes of the sighted and it perverts the great tzaddikim, which we would have to read, like Unklus says, as proper words, proper thoughts get perverted because. There is graft involved, and we find all sorts of ways to rationalize ridiculous ideas and perverted ideas because we have a self-interest. We're supposed to remove that self-interest. So again, the emphasis, in court, it has to be absolutely straight. It has to be just the law, not favoring the poor, not favoring the rich, not seeing things in any prejudicial way. However, outside of court, we have to be prejudiced in favor of our fellow. We have to help him as much as necessary and as much as possible. In the meantime, the ger lo tilchatz. You may not oppress the ger. A warning we already saw previously. And as I mentioned there, we're told that this is a result of our a personal, our own national and personal experience. As strangers in Mitzrayim, we know what it's like to be a stranger. Therefore, we should be sensitive to the ger. Now, we were already warned about not oppressing the ger. So what's this doing here? Evidently, this is referring to the ger who comes into the court. Again, we're in the court. 
and we have to make sure that in the court everybody gets a fair shake and there is no money changing hands as graft that's going to affect the case there's no personal favoritism towards the poor or towards the rich or against the stranger and the outsider and you should know what that's like and that's the abject lesson and that leads us to a very strange twist that will take us to the end of this passage which is about the Chagim, about the holidays. What do the Chagim have to do with this? And the answer we will see at the end of this piece. For six years you plant your, you plant the earth and you gather all of the produce. On the seventh year you cease and you abandon it. This is called Shemitah. And again, a law that is just adumbrated here and explicated more fully later on at the beginning of Parshat Bahar. Who will eat from that produce? The poor of your people. Whatever they leave over will be eaten by the animals of the field. Meaning you don't have ownership over the field. Every seven years you leave it alone and the poor get to come and eat. You, of course, can also eat from it. And whatever's left over is eaten by the animals. You don't store it. So not only in your grain field, but also in your vineyard and in your olive grove with trees. You have to leave them alone in the seventh year and allow them to be opened up. This is further protection for the poor, and it is a mixture of the two themes that we saw. It's in a sense the notion of justice of everybody being equal under the law. Here everybody is an equal owner. But it really is driven by a whole different consideration, which is the compassion for the poor who do not have. And at least once every seven years, they have equal access to the yield of the land and the bounty. And then we continue with the agricultural theme and the issue of social justice within that context. Social justice and welfare. For six days you do your work. On the seventh day you rest. And that's, of course, Shabbat. Now, what does Shabbat have to do with this? Shabbat, as we met in last week's parasha, was a commemoration of creation. Uh-huh, not only. So that your animals, your ox and your donkey can rest. They're the work animals. And the son of your slave girl, and, of course, the slave girl herself, and the slave himself, and the stranger will all be able to yinafash, will be able to breathe, will be able to get a breather, be able to get a rest. Again, these institutions are all intended to make sure that the underprivileged are given a chance, are given some protection. They also have protection in the court, but not undue protection, which keeps them from having a real fair day in court, so that they are not overly favored nor disfavored. And now, a general statement. <clears throat> Everything that I have told you about, be very careful to avoid. Do not have the names of other gods mentioned. They should not be heard on your mouth. What does this have to do with anything? So Chachamim understand that this is referring to taking an oath in the name of another god. Why would you do so? 
And Chachamim say, therefore, you should not enter into a business relationship with a pagan, because he'll drag you to his court and may you, make you take an oath in the name of his God. We now understand that this is further about courts. Make sure that your court proceedings are happening within a proper baiting and are not being taken out there <coughs> to another court so that you will end up mentioning the names of the other gods. And from here until the end of our section <coughs> is about the Chagim. Why the Chagim? Again, I mentioned at the end, I'll explain. Shalosh regalim tachog libashana. This is the first time we hear about it, but not the last. There are three walking festivals that you should celebrate to, for me in the year. Now, in, interesting, the word lachog comes from a mechugah, which is a circle. And the reason is that the way that celebrations happen is that people sit in a circle Saviv in a misiba with haseba, and they celebrate together. At Chag HaMatzot Tishmor, first of all, keep Chag HaMatzot, which we were first told about in Parshat Bo, as we left Mitzrayim. Shivat Yamim Tocha Matzot Kasher Tziviticha. So for seven days, eat Matzot as I commanded you. L'mo'ed Chodesh Aviv. When is the time? In the Chodesh Aviv, in the month when things start to spring up, what we call Nisan. Kivo Yatzata Mitzrayim. Meaning, that's when you left Mitzrayim. So Hashem is commanding us, as He did in Parshat Bo, to not just commemorate the Exodus, but commemorate it the same time that it happened, at the time that we left Mitzrayim. And do not have my face be seen empty-handed. Which means when you come up to celebrate in my place, you bring something. You bring korbanot. And now we hear about two holidays we never heard of before. One of them is the Harvest Festival, Chag HaKatsir. Bikure Masecha, of the first things that you grow, that you plant. Now, there are seven species in Israel that are well known in Dvarim, Perak Chet, Pasuk Chet, Eretz Chita, etc. The first one of them to bloom is, uh, to, to grow and to be ripened is the barley, which is around Pesach time. However, barley is not a significant plant because typically it was used for animal food. The next one is chita, wheat, which is the staple of everything. And as a result of that, that's Bikure Masecha. So the wheat harvest, which typically happens somewhere between mid-May and early June, that's the festival Chag HaKatsir, which we call Shavuot. It will not be called Shavuot until later on in the Torah. The Chag HaAsif Shana, and the gathering festival at the end of the year, what's the end of the year, meaning the agricultural year, the end of the agricultural year is in the fall, when you gather all of your things from the field, meaning all of the things that you grew, when you gather them from the field, that is when you celebrate that holiday, and that's what we later come to know as Sukkot. And now, wrapping that whole thing up, three times a year, all of your males shall be seen, to the face of the Master, Hashem. And here is a powerful statement it takes us back to the beginning of Mishpatim. takes us back to the beginning of Nasserta Dibrot. We have just left Mitzrayim. We have just left the servitude of Paro. The Aserta Dibrot are introduced with Anochi Adonai Lorecha Shotzeticha Meretz Mitzrayim. I am Hashem who took you out of Mitzrayim. Mi Beit Avadim. You were his slaves. Now you're my servants. The beginning of uh, of Mishpatim is introducing these are the laws and an Eved Ivri which is really subverting the, the events of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, 
has a certain punishment that comes to him if he decides to stay, and that is the the piercing of the ear. And now, three times a year, you come and appear before the true master, but three times a year, that's it. The rest of the year, you're doing your work. And now we get several more laws dealing with these holidays. <laughs> so, when you bring the blood of my korban, do not own chametz. This cannot mean do not offer on top of chametz, because chametz is going to be forbidden to be anywhere in the Mizbeach, in any case, in Vayikra Perak Bet. So it must mean, Lotizbach al chametz, do not slaughter while you own chametz, dam zivchi. And here's how we know that you're not allowed to own chametz from midday on the 14th, because dam zivchi halachically is referring to the Korban HaPesach. <coughs> and the fat of my festival offering should not lunge, should not sleep, meaning stay on the Mizbeach all the way till morning. And here's how we know that a korban has to be finished in its time or burnt up by its time, and otherwise it is pasul bipsul lina. And the last pasuk of this section, reshit bikuriyad matcha tavi The very first of your fruit offerings you should bring, bring to the house of Hashem. And again, a mitzvah which here is just sketched out. The details are something that we'll get only at the end of the Torah in Parshat Kitavo. Kitavo. Do not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. A well, the well-known prohibition of Basar B'chalav here is presented for one of the three times here in Kitisai and in Re'eh with this odd phrasing. And so to conclude, just a note about this odd phrasing and its connection to the earlier part of the Pasuk. The Sephorno here makes the comment that you should bring your first fruits and do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. He connects the two and says, don't act as the pagans do with this rich fertility ritual of cooking a kid in its mother's milk in order to achieve uh, good crops, but rather the way that you will achieve success in the field is by bringing your Bikurim to Hashem. So he reads the Pasuk as being the yin and the yang, what you should do as opposed to what you should not do. Where did he get this idea from? Well, the Rambam in Morenevuchi makes the suggestion in explaining that has many different suggestions about why the prohibition exists of milk and meat and why it's worded that way. The Rambam makes the suggestion, he says, perhaps the pagans had a fertility ritual in which they would take an animal and slaughter it and cook it in its own mother's milk uh, as part of this, uh, this pagan practice. And he says, therefore, the Torah prohibits the act, but prohibits it using that wording as part of the general distancing from pagan culture and pagan behavior. There's a constant theme throughout the third section of the Morin Nevuchim, where the Ramam talks about Ta'amea Mitzvot, the reasons for many of the mitzvot. Um, the Sforno seems to pick up on this, and interestingly, in 1929, a tablet was found in the town of Ugarit, which is a cultic center around the time of the Torah, a little bit earlier, where there seemed to be written an instruction of slaughter an animal and prepare the cream, indicating that an animal was slaughtered and then cooked in, its, in milk, uh, as part of a ritual. Uh, recently, there have been those who have challenged the reading of that tablet as to whether or not that's what it says, but a fascinating possibility with which we'll end our podcast. We'll do the final podcast in Parshat Mishpatim, beginning in Perak Chaf Gimel Pasuk Chaf. In the meantime, everybody should have a wonderful day.